Hello, welcome to the Weight Endurance Podcast. I am your host, Cody Waite. I'm taking you through our seasonal training methods and progressions to make you a fitter and faster rider. You may notice I am without my co-host this week, my adorable wife, Kathy Waite. Um, I am still up in Winter Park, finishing up the end of my three-week N equals one experimental high-altitude training camp. Uh, but Kathy pulled the plug, I don't blame her, and uh, went home after our second week, the, the We Devo week, our We Devo camp week. She was pretty shackle-blasted, as the kids like to say, meaning tired and then also had some other adult things to take care of at home. And I think she also wanted probably more than anything to play pickleball. They don't have pickleball courts up here in Winter Park that we're aware of anyway. So I am flying solo, so bear with me. Um, it's definitely a little awkward to just talk into a microphone by yourself. Um, but I wanted to provide some content this week uh, to our dedicated listeners and more so to our Season Salvation Plan followers because we're getting into a, a tough final little push of this second block. So I wanted to give some tips and suggestions on that for our plan followers. Um, so yeah, that's what we're doing. So this is fun because it actually reminds me of a few years ago, kind of our early remote base builder program as we were creating the remote base builder program, basically. Um, I did audio recordings of myself speaking to the group following the plan very much like this but it was just a basic mp3 file that then I emailed out to the group um, that kind of gave that week's training instructions and tips and things like that so basically that's sort of what gave birth I guess to the whole podcasting idea back then I mean podcasts were certainly around but I wasn't um, I don't know confident enough and committed enough to do an actual podcast so I just did recordings so it's kind of like a throwback to that of just me talking into the microphone. So hopefully I don't ramble on too much. I do have a tendency to want to summarize the summaries, and I don't have my partner Kathy here to keep me on track, so fingers crossed um, I'll keep that to a minimum. Anyway, this is episode 43 of our podcast, um, and other than touching on week 7 of our season salvation plan, the final big week of our aerobic threshold block, which is one of the tougher weeks, I will say, um, I want to just touch on altitude training because I've been up here in Winter Park, like I mentioned, about 9,000 feet, um, coming up, closing in on three weeks now, and had some extra time, been doing a lot of reading and reading up on altitude training and all that. So I thought it, at the end of the show here, I'll share some things that I kind of learned or um, thought maybe would be helpful for people, um, either considering doing an altitude race at some point in the future or uh, interested in trying some altitude training of their own. So, um, but before we do that, I'll stick with the routine of, you know, what have we been up to? Um, like I mentioned, I'm two and a half plus weeks in to my three week personal altitude camp. Um, this was kind of a somewhat of a spur of the moment idea. Um, you know, we were going to be out and off racing. Um, nationals would have been the the last week or two mountain bike nationals and and other races as well so we had this time kind of blocked off anyway and um it was hot down in denver and we had just gotten back from our fun pacific northwest training camp tour road trip and it was like 
we'll recover for a week at home, and then why don't we just go up to Winter Park anyway? We were going to do that anyway for Nationals um, and get out of the heat and ride up there. And I, We all love Winter Park. I love Winter Park particularly. Um, I think it's a great little town. Um, the trails are amazing. And um, just kind of spending an extended period at altitude, which I've never done before. Um, I think the longest I've probably spent at what I would consider high altitude, so let's say above 7,000 feet, uh, you know, is probably like the 7 to 10 day range um, and never three weeks. So it's kind of become just sort of an interesting N equals one test to see if I notice any changes and what those changes are, um, particularly in power, power testing. And I'm going to even try to get a blood test when I get home um, just to see red blood cell count, hematocrit, things like that, um, and compare it to a a wellness visit I had back in, I think it was like January this year, um, and see if any of those numbers changed too. I thought it'd be kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, so I've never spent extended periods of time. However, I've mentioned in previous shows, altitude doesn't really affect me a whole lot. I'm, I'm far more affected by heat and humidity, I think, than altitude. I grew up outside of Phoenix, Arizona, um, which is not high altitude, probably somewhere around 2,000 feet elevation where I grew up. Um, but I just never was that affected. Um, but one thing historically, because I've been giving a lot of thought, thought about this lately, is kind of my middle school to high school years of growing up, my family had a small horse ranch in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is about 7,000 feet elevation, that we, we would go to um, in the summer. So when school got out, uh, we'd go up there, bring... My mom's big into horses. She'd bring some horses. I was big into hiking and backpacking. And really, that's where I fell in love with mountain biking um, as well in Flagstaff, Arizona. And so for about six or seven years there, uh, we'd go, you know, two to three months, probably two and a half months of the summer up there at 7,000 feet elevation. And so maybe, you know, that had some sort of effect um, on me at that kind of developmental stage of my life, say from... 13 to 17, 18 of being exposed, you know, for 10 or so weeks at a time to 7,000 feet elevation. And maybe that's why I'm not as quote unquote sensitive or aware of uh, training and racing and altitude. I mean, ever since I've actually done fairly well um, racing at elevation. So kind of a little tidbit on thoughts on that. Um, some deep thoughts by Cody Waite. Um, Last week, so the second week of my three weeks up here, we had a WeDevo altitude training camp. So we took our Weed Development riders, invited them all. We got all but two, so nine of our 11 riders. One's recovering from uh, a concussion injury and still very limited to um, outdoor riding. The other one was attempting the Colorado Trail, which did not pan out so well due to weather. Um, and he was unable to join us as well. But we had nine of our WeDevo riders and two uh, special guests as well, two other athletes, young athletes we coach, join us. Um, and we got in a lot of great riding up here in Winter Park as a group. So for that, we moved over into a, a condo, actually in Fraser, which is the nearby town. And we did just tons and tons of riding, <clears throat> um, a lot of the aerobic threshold training that Season Salvation Plan followers are familiar with by now. We basically did that same program here at nine to 10,000 feet elevation, which was, was really cool. And, um, as a side note, winter park is great 
for that type of training because we could ride over to the resort and do our intervals up the fire road uh, at the um, Trussell Bike Park slash Mary Jane Ski Resort. And then you finish the, the intervals at the top of the hill and then you can jump on the Trestle Bike Park trails and ride those down and you know just have fun through the berms and the whoops and the wood features um, and things of that nature. So it's a really great venue for that. And then we'd alternate days of you know interval, aerobic threshold interval days with just some basic trail riding and exploring more of the, the trails and stuff in the area, which, which are amazing. So um, that was great. I think all the riders really enjoyed it. Um, I definitely put the screws to them and, you know, made warm out, I think. Um, Kathy's seen a few of them back home this, this earlier this week and said they, <laughs> several of them look pretty shackle blasted, pretty exhausted from the week, which is good. Um, and kind of where a lot of people should be if you're following this, our season salvation plan with the aerobic threshold intervals. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second here. Um, then a couple other little updates and news tidbits to touch on. We just launched our new training plan subscription option or service uh, available on our website that is basically gaining a subscriber full access to all of our training plans. So that includes our base builders. We have 12, 18, and 24-week base builder programs. We have uh, race prep plans for just about every cycling discipline minus track racing. Um so you name it, road bike, gravel, cyclocross, mountain bike, endurance stuff, fondos, all that sort of stuff. Um, all in high and low volume options, different durations of weeks. And then we also have our newer aerobic threshold booster plans, anaerobic threshold booster plans, and we're working on some new stuff um, as well. And then as a side note, also working on our 2020 to 2021 base builder plan as well, which we're making some cool updates and, and tweaks and adjustments. So all of those plans would be available to our subscription service athletes for a low monthly fee, uh, as low as 25 bucks a month, and even a little lower than that, I believe, if you sign up for like the whole year at once. And from there, you can basically swap sort of, in essence, quote, drag and drop plans from your Training Peaks calendar with our assistance and kind of build your upcoming season because we're sort of coming to the end of, of 2020 season um, that never was, I suppose. And now for the next year with the training plan subscription, you could pick, you know, based on how many weeks you have to work with until your race happens, hopefully in 2021, that, um, you know, how many weeks of base builder do you need, high and low volume, how, you know, what race prep plan do you need, all those sorts of things. And then in the event of something coming up, I mean, hopefully not something as major as we had this year with the coronavirus interruption, but, you know, things in life happen. You get sick, you get, you know, buried at work, um, and, you know, you get off track of your training plan. So rather than trying to figure that out on your own and using our downloadable plans as stock, you can stop, kind of hit the reset button, move things around accordingly, and swap and go um, as the season progresses. So I think it's a really cool feature um, and available on our websites. And I'll put a link in the show notes too for that as well. Um, and then some other, one last little announcement of our, speaking of our WE development team, 
We've been working a lot the last few weeks on securing all the details for the 2021 season. Um, and we're really excited about what's happening and what the direction we're going with the whole redevelopment program. Um, <clears throat> and we are adding two, two big things. We're adding one access for riders across the country. Up to this point, we've been limited strictly to Denver area athletes and actually one exception for a Laramie, Wyoming based athlete um, that we wanted to have on our team. But basically, Denver area athletes, and now we want to open it up across the country. We've had tons of interest from young riders, you know, anywhere and everywhere that want to be part of the program and, and train with us and progress with us. And so we've figured out ways to make that work. Um, so we're really excited about that. And then we're also adding in um, a second layer to the team. Um, so the team will have two layers. One we're remaining to call the We Devo team. Um, and this is going to be open for 14 to 22-year-old developing riders. We'll provide them with the training plan and direction and weekly conference calls and coach-led workouts online via Zoom and Zwift uh, to train um, eight months of the year, uh, a four-month base period over the winter, and then a four-month racing period leading up to mountain bike nationals as a really cool option to bring young riders in of pretty varying ages, 14 to 22, um, that are, you know, wanting to progress their development in mountain bike racing. And then we're going to up the ante with what we're calling our We National Team, which is going to be a much smaller segment of riders, kind of, you have to apply to get on this team, that's going to be focused on the UCI level of racing. So we'll be looking for 17 to 18 year old UCI juniors. Um, that are wanting to get those UCI points to qualify for uh, world championships and then also compete for podium spots at national championships. And then also uh, 19 to 22-year-old riders uh, planning to race the UCI um, U23 category as well, trying to uh, qualify for world championships and other uh, UCI-level races. So it's becoming kind of our... I guess, top tier racing program, um, really kind of helping riders take it to that next level of, uh, UCI level racing. So, um, lots of cool stuff happening. Um, as of August 1st, we will have the applications available on our website and more information on both of these programs, but the applications for the national, we national team, um, on there. And then also the ability to register and join on the We Devo side of uh, the system as well. So two different options. You know, we're hoping we can just reach more young athletes and um, continue to grow basically mountain bike racing in, in America is our goal. So um, lots of cool stuff on that. Um, so quite a, quite a lot of updates, but let's move on. Um, to week seven of our season salvation plan. So for those following um, this plan, we have quite a few of you. Week seven is the third week of the second block. So the second block is aerobic threshold. So these are the intervals uh, that are targeting 80% of your max heart rate and long, you know, building long duration intervals. So the first week of the plan, um, sorry, I'm pulling up training peak. So the first week of that block, we started with 10 minute intervals and you can go back and listen to previous, the last two previous episodes of our podcast that talked a little bit more about these. 
Um, and we suggested some people might even tweak these to start a little lower duration, maybe as short as five minute intervals and some maybe a little higher than 15 minute intervals. And then the second week, which would have been last week, um, progressing to more, you know, longer intervals and accumulating more minutes of this aerobic threshold. And real quickly, aerobic threshold for those new listeners uh, is 80%, roughly 80% of your max heart rate. And it's that threshold between that metabolic threshold of using carbohydrates and fats for fuel. So it's the, the, the greatest power you can produce while still hovering around 50% of your energy coming from fat and 50% of your energy for carbohydrates. So when you go beyond that threshold, you can do more work, but you are now shifting into more of that higher carbohydrate range of energy systems. When you stay below that, you're focusing more on the fat-burning aerobic energy systems. <clears throat> so this last week, the third week of aerobic threshold that we're we're going into here as you listen to this podcast is um, very challenging. You're accumulating more and more minutes, more of this work, and it's quite possible to start feeling some signs of fatigue. And we talked about this in the third week of the first block, which is our lower end aerobic uh, endurance block, episode number 39 of our podcast, where we talked about training fatigue. And a lot of this still applies here. And this block that we're in now, the aerobic threshold block, being that you are doing more work, meaning you're producing more watts at these aerobic intervals, can often be quite a bit more fatiguing than the first block. And that's by design. You know, we're I'm very much about progressing training from easier, lower loads to higher, you know, more demanding loads in training programs. And that's exactly what we're doing here. So the, these similar or perhaps greater signs of fatigue could start to be uh, piling up on one um, doing this. So some signs of fatigue to kind of think about and be aware of are your RPE, rate of per perceived exertion, uh, may start to go up. So if you're training at this 80% max heart rate, you're more or less doing the same effort, not necessarily the same work because your power may actually be declining, but you're doing the same overall effort putting forth. And if that same effort, 80% of max heart rate, begins to feel harder, and this is usually felt from a, at the, like the muscular level, meaning it's just feeling harder to push on the pedals and keep your heart rate at 80% of max heart rate. That's a sign of possible fatigue accumulating. And small amounts of this is totally normal. I had some of this uh, yesterday in my workout. Uh, particularly the last interval I did, um, it just became like a obvious like muscular endurance workout, and it was definitely challenging. So when that RPE starts going up, that's a sign that you, you know you're you're probably getting fatigued. Um, along with that, or maybe conversely with that, is your heart rate not wanting to go up. So it's the same idea. If you feel like you have to push harder on the pedals to get your heart rate up to eighty percent, you know they kind of go together that's also a sign of, of fatigue. So as we get fatigued, what's interesting is our resting heart rates oftentimes will become higher. So when you wake up in the morning or even when you're just sitting around or standing around, you know, maybe when you're rested and, and, and recovered, you are, you know, 60, 70, 80 beats a minute. When you are accumulating some fatigue, 
your body's kind of working a little bit overtime to get yourself recovered, your standing there heart rate might be 80, 90, or 100. You know, it might be higher than what is normal for you. Um, then, but what's interesting is your working heart rate will actually get suppressed. So your resting heart rate gets elevated and your working heart rate gets suppressed. And this is most notable, noticeable uh, when you're really pushing it into higher intensities, but even these kind of middle intensities of aerobic threshold, around 80% of max heart rate, starts to become more challenging to get it up there. So if you start noticing that, again, another sign of fatigue. So it's always great to reference those two, RPE and heart rate, and also power. All together gives you like a more clear picture of, of possibly what's going on here. Um, again, along with this, uh, your power... This is a little more obvious, but as you get fatigued, your power may start to decline as well. So if you've been doing intervals, let's say at 300 watts at 80% of max heart rate, and now you are at the same 80% and um, you're only doing 270 watts, your muscles are getting tired and your power is dropping. And you know this is the same thing that happens within a workout or, or a race where you start out great and your power is good, and then by the end of an event or race or workout, your power is declined because you're tired. So you're accumulating some fatigue there. Your muscles are basically kind of running out of firing capacity um, and ability to do work. So getting tired. And then a big, big sign, um, all of these things as they start to kind of add up, you know, are like yellow flags, orange flags, and then, you know, finally you get to a red flag which would be something where you wake up in the morning and you don't even want to look at your bike, much less get on your bike. Um, you know, that's a big, big sign um, of, you know, it's probably time to take a couple easy days, you know, or switch over to a, a recovery week at that, at that point. So um, just some things to be aware of. Now, if you do feel some fatigue piling on and you're wondering if like what you're doing is too much and how to adjust and you know ways around this if you're following the plan, um, the simplest way to do this if you know if you're seeing signs of RPE going up, you know heart rate's not going up as easily, power's getting a little lower on the intervals, you can quite simply just add some recovery days into your plan for the next few days following the the noticed bit of fatigue. And then simply resume the plan. So if your last big workout was on a Saturday and you kind of felt like you were really struggling, then maybe Sunday, Monday are both a couple of easy days or maybe even Tuesday as well. And then you can resume the plan again on Wednesday. You can get back to the intervals again on Thursday and kind of finish out the block. So just some small micro adjustments might be all you need just to get kind of the body recovered a little bit and, and back on track. Um, Another option, if it's a little bit more severe, like you've gotten more to that orangish red flag warning, is consider just taking the recovery week that comes next week and moving it into this third week. So you've essentially done two really good works of training, got yourself nice and tired. Instead of trying to push on and dig a deeper hole with a third week of really fatiguing yourself, let's just take that third week out, essentially, like cut it out, and if you have premium training peaks, you can literally use the cut button of the whole week and cut it out and then cut and paste the next week, which is the recovery week, into this week. So once you've done that, you might be saying, okay, so now I'm a little out of sync. So what you can do then 
is after this recovery week that you've now added in, you can copy and paste the first high intensity week. So the third block, the block that follows this aerobic threshold block, copy and paste that. And what you end up doing is getting four high intensity weeks in a row before you wrap up the program. So this is actually a really great strategy. Um, and if, if you're really feeling fatigued from the aerobic work and that muscular endurance work, getting that recovery in a little earlier than planned, and then you can kind of quote, make up the weeks with an additional high intensity week in there. Um, so this ex very same exact thing actually happened with Kathy. <clears throat> Pardon me, with Kathy. Last week she did probably, definitely her biggest week of training of the whole season. And kudos, kudos to you, girl. Good job. Um, but she subsequently got extremely tired from it. Um, so she did, you know, more TSS, more muscular endurance work, more elevation gain, all that kind of stuff. Not to mention all the intense concentration of mountain biking every day and that sort of thing. So she was worn out. So what we decided is we sent her home. She's in the midst of a recovery week as we speak now. She's starting to really feel good in the second half of this week. And we're just going to then have her start with the high-intensity week next week. So she'll get four weeks of the high-intensity training in there. So then when I come home and recover, she'll actually be starting into her high-intensity training. And then after my recovery week, we'll be both back on track doing the same workouts to finish out the last few weeks of the season salvation plan. Um, so good. I hope that maybe clears things up. Um, just to summarize the summary or to reiterate, some fatigue is designed into this plan. You are supposed to be getting tired in this third week. And fatigue is a positive sign up to a point. You've got to dig this hole of fatigue and kind of break yourself down catabolically so you can then recover and build yourself back up anabolically and you're a stronger athlete because of it. I mean, that's the basic principle of training. And that's what's designed into all of our training plans is build some fatigue rest and build back up and you're going to be a stronger athlete and progressively move through that. So this is just a conversation based on if you are starting to feel particularly fatigued um, and perhaps digging too big of a hole, let's just adjust things a little bit um, with how I just mentioned. All right, cool. I hope that was helpful uh, for some or all of you. Um, let's get into the, a quick little discussion on um, altitude training because like I said earlier uh, being up here for two and a half weeks now at altitude um, and seeing some kind of changes and adaptations happening in real time in myself and just a lot of reading and studying up on altitude training um, I thought I'd just use that as the topic of discussion here um, so challenges of training at altitude it's very common you, you hear all the time that people when they come up to altitude to do an event, or even when they're just, you know, tourists visiting, they'll say like, oh, there's not enough oxygen up here. You know, I can barely breathe. But that is actually an incorrect statement. And most of us have, have thought that or made that statement before. But the challenge that you are being presented with when you come to altitude is not that there's less oxygen, because there's actually the same, I think it's around 20, 21% of oxygen in the air we breathe. And it's the same regardless of the elevation that you're at. What's different is the barometric pressure. And there's less pressure as you go to higher 
elevations. So with this barometric pressure, what you have here is a gradient between your outside atmosphere, atmospheric or barometric pressure, and your inside your the pressure of your lungs, essentially. And there's a gradient there between the two. So it's harder to get oxygen into the bloodstream at altitude because there is less pressure forcing the oxygen, uh, let's see if I get this right, I think from your lungs into your blood. Whereas when you're at lower elevations, there's more pressure outside your body. So it's, it can squeeze the oxygen into your lungs, basically, more easily because it's going from a high pressure environment outside to a lower pressure environment inside. But at altitude, it's the opposite. You have less pressure outside, more pressure inside, and it's harder to get that oxygen through your lungs and into your bloodstream. Um, so one of the things I learned is kind of why barometric pressure changes. In my understanding, I'll try my best to get this as accurately spoken as possible uh, because I'm not a scientist, but basically from at the molecular level, the oxygen molecules actually weigh more than the other elements of air. The, the biggest element in air, I believe, is nitrogen, which is lighter than oxygen. And there's some other elements in there as well. But oxygen essentially wants to sink. So as you go up in elevation, the oxygen's wanting to stay down below. So as you move up in elevation, there's less uh, weight or pressure on that. So the oxygen is sort of sunk down and you have more nitrogen and the other lighter gases in the air that you're breathing. So um, kind of a little science tip there. Hopefully I said that correctly. Um, so it's essentially that pressure gradient between the air and your lungs that makes it difficult to breathe or get the oxygen in um, into your blood, blood system. So when you train at high altitudes, the air is not forced into, into your bloodstream as easily. So you actually have to then, your body has to work harder. So this is why uh, noticeable things like you have a higher resting heart rate um, and elevation. And when you walk up a flight of stairs, if you're not accustomed to the elevation, pardon me, you kind of get out of breath. It's like your body's having to kind of catch up with um, to get more of that oxygen in. It's having to work harder. So the good news is over time, your body will grow more red blood cells. And that's among the biggest benefits of why athletes like to come and train and do altitude camps is so they can grow more red blood cells. Um, to carry the oxygen um, to the muscles. So as you get more red blood cells, it eases the struggle of getting the oxygen. <clears throat> and these cells help carry oxygen through the body, which then results in better performance. So your, your muscles need oxygen to metabolize the sugars to do work. And so if you have more red blood cells, you get more oxygen and subsequently can do more work. Um, but until you grow these red blood cells, things are kind of difficult at altitude and most people have probably experienced this before you know RPE goes up significantly because your oxygen I'm sorry your muscles need more oxygen to do work so you cannot work as hard meaning your power is less and you have to slow down because your muscles aren't getting enough oxygen to to do the work you're accustomed to at lower elevations okay so that's kind of the layman's explanation my best effort of kind of explaining what's going on at a uh, 
biochemical level, I suppose. Um, so effects of power loss at ele as elevation increases is something that's always been kind of fascinating to me, um, being that here in Colorado, you know, Denver, sort of the base elevation in Colorado is about, you know, five, 6,000 feet elevation. And usually you go up from there, especially for athletes, because you're going to go into the mountains. And it's always interesting when you go do a race, like let's say Leadville, for example, that's 10,000 feet or higher, you know, people with a power meter and particularly people get really screwed up because you can't do as much work and your power, you do less power. You basically, you go slower as these elevation increases. So that's why a lot of people coming from low elevation and they do an event at high elevation and they really struggle and oftentimes kind of blow up and end up saying, I I'm terrible at elevation is just actually a improper pacing. They need, they, they didn't recognize that they, they are unable to do as much work. Therefore they need to go slower. And ha if they're able to do that, they can pace themselves better and have a better experience and likely a better race result. And this is really no different than um, an athlete going from a moderate climate to a hot and humid climate, which we talked about a few episodes back in the heat training topic and said how heat and altitude from a training and performance standpoint are very similar. Same idea. You go to a hot environment where you're used to a, a more moderate environment, you have to slow, you can't do as much work, you have to slow down and pace yourself. Um, or you're just going to have a rough day. Um, but I found this really cool chart. I've actually had this chart in my back pocket for a long time. Not my literal back pocket, but um, one that I reference quite frequently. And it's available on um, Training Peaks in their um, catalog of like training tips, training articles. Uh, let me see. The, the title is The Effect of Racing at Altitude by Jake. Uh, I'm going to slaughter his name. Riddles. Riddle ski, we'll go with that. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes here. Um, but basically, it's a lot of what we're talking about here, but they give a really cool chart, a really cool table of the effect of going from or to different elevations and its effect on your power and or, or lack of power, loss of power as you go to higher elevations. And it's very much a, um, it's not a linear loss of power. Um, it's definitely more of a ramped, um, exponential curve of losing power. So it starts out with, you know, someone at sea level, you essentially have a hundred percent access to your power capabilities, right? Now, as you move up to someone from sea level moves up to elevations and we'll just pick 6,000 feet elevation. It's about midway through the chart and an elevation where I'm from outside of Denver. Um, <clears throat> when you're acclimatized at 6,000 feet elevation, you have about 93% of what they're calling available aerobic power. So the way I interpret this is you're losing about 7% of your power if you were to be doing the same effort at sea level. So 7%, I mean, that's a fair, fair, you know, amount of loss. Um, you know, I think to keep even round numbers, if your FTP at sea level is let's say 300 watts, and you lose 7%, that's about 21 watts. So you're moving from sea level up to 6,000 feet. Your FTP is essentially now um, 279, let's say 280 watts. So it's a nice little chunk. So um, then when you 
move from 6,000 feet up to, say, nine or 10,000 feet, which is where I'm at here, uh, when you're acclimatized to that nine or 10,000 feet, uh, it was a big jump between nine and 10. So at 9,000 feet, you have 86% of your power available to if you were at sea level. And you go up just that extra 1,000 feet uh, goes down to 84%. So you lose another 2%, um, 83.7 technically. So another 2% just in that um, amount of elevation gain. And this is an interesting concept because going back to Leadville, a lot of people are familiar with this, um, but I see it here um, doing like the Winter Park hill climb over the years. When you start a climb at, say, 9,000 feet elevation, or let's say Columbine in Leadville is, I'm going to, Use, use loose numbers here. Maybe we're starting around 10,000 feet elevation and you get upwards of like 12 and a half thousand feet or something. You are losing power as you gain that elevation. And it's really noticeable when you in, at these higher elevations, you know, from 9,000 upward feet, as opposed to say going from train, you know, doing a climb in San Diego where you go from sea level to um, 2,000 feet, you're not, you're only going to lose about 2%. Uh, but when you go from a climb starting at 10,000 feet up to 13,000 feet, you're losing 10% over, is that about 9% over um, those, that same window, but just at a higher elevation. So it's all super cool. And then they have a column for non-acclimatized um, efforts as well, because this is even more important for someone coming from sea level or a lower elevation and going to a higher elevation. It takes many weeks to get acclimatized. And so it's even more more drastic or more severe. So we'll go back. My original example was sea level, you got 100%. If you're acclimatized at 6,000 feet, you have 93%. So you've lost 7%. But if you're from San Diego and you go to Denver, you're actually going to lose a couple more percentage. You're at 90%. So you're going to lose about 10% until you're acclimatized, which you'll regain about 3% of that back. Um, so it's all really kind of interesting stuff, if you like numbers, I suppose. Um, and I've kind of looked at this over the years, doing races like Leadville and the Winter Park Hill Climb and things like that to help estimate what my available power is in a race and to help me sort of pace especially for like a, a time trial hill climb is the perfect example because you can be very specific if it's a mass start race, you kind of got to keep up with the leaders uh, it doesn't apply as much but if you're in more of a time trial type environment um, it's really helpful to help kind of identify what sort of power you're likely to be able to do there so um, i'll put a little link to the article um, i think it's pretty interesting on that. Um, so let's talk about the acclim acclimation process um, and kind of how what I've seen and experienced recently, but also over the years and, and what I've kind of read up on here. So acclimatizing to or acclimating to elevation um, the f in general for most people, and everyone's a little bit different, but the first 24 to 48 hours, you're often, quote, okay. Like you'll feel maybe that shortness of breath, but performance-wise, you're you're going to be, quote, okay. Um, and one interesting thing I learned here is why that is, and this is also as a side note why 
when people are going to go do a high altitude race, they, the common advice is either go up last minute, like the day before, or even the morning before if possible, and do the race because you're going to be, quote, okay, versus going up for, you know, and trying to like pre-ride and hang out for a few days and then race. You're not going to feel okay. Or you go up there and you have to spend three plus weeks to get more into the acclimation process. But what's happening here, which I found really interesting, is your body senses that there is this pressure gradient and your ability to draw the oxygen into your lungs, into your muscles is reduced. So what your body does naturally is it, re it actually reduces your blood volume. And I believe this is why you often pee a lot when you come to altitude, um, if you've noticed that before, which I have. I've been waking up two, sometimes three times the first week in particular to pee while sleeping. Um, and now I've gotten to wear just one pee per night, which is for me normal, um, even at home. So I believe that's what's happening is you reduce blood volume. You're basically you're removing some water from your blood. And what this does is it essentially increases, even if it's like slightly artificially so, your hematocrit level or your red blood cell level, the percentage there increases because if you reduce the water and blood volume, but your red blood cells that you do have stay the same, that percentage of red blood cells to other stuff, plasma and whatnot, has increased. And so what that does is it kind of tricks your body for this temporary period of like being okay and, and starting like the adaption, adaptation process. So I thought that was kind of a cool thing that our, our body is pretty amazing. I mean, our biological ability of on so many levels is amazing, but this is another one to add to the list. Um, so then moving on. <clears throat> so when from days approximately two or three to say seven or eight, that's when you really start to feel it and your performance will definitely take kind of a nosedive, um, which again is why they say come up last minute or come up, commit for three weeks. But when if you come up for a couple of days and try to, quote, acclimate or preview the course and hang out, you're going to not feel well and not perform as well as you could, um, you know, three, four, five, six days into it, okay? Um, that doesn't mean you can't have a good race, though. It just means you wouldn't you can't perform as well as you could had you come up last minute or for three weeks. Okay. So don't, a lot of this is mental. And I see this all the time with people of like, Oh, I don't do well in altitude. It's like, yes, you may not do as well as you can at home, but you can still have a good result. And a lot of that's mental. That's maybe a different rabbit hole to go down in a different podcast. Then, now, then when you get past that first week and to say day eight, your body then really begins that adaptation process. You do begin to adapt. It's a slow process. You start building those red blood cells. Um, it takes, uh, I believe I read, 21 to 28 days, so three to four weeks till you really to create more of these red blood cells and to have actual accumulation of more red blood cells. <clears throat> now, to truly acclimate can take several months to a full year, depending on the individual, to, to truly acclimate to the to this new elevation. So um, after about three to four weeks, you're going to start feeling really good again and, and consider yourself good to go and acclimated. And, you know, as far as like that power chart, when it's showing you the acclimatized power loss will have improved and um, 
and you'll be your performance will have come up but then to truly acclimate on all levels it takes many months to a full year so um, kind of a long a long deal um, some benefits on altitude training uh, the obvious one is that increase in the red blood cells so the more red blood cells you have the more oxygen you can get out of your lungs you know from the oxygen you suck in and um, you also gain more hemoglobin in the blood which is related to the red blood cells um, and all that's going to allow your muscles to do a little bit more work because again muscles need oxygen and carbohydrates to do uh, perform work um, you're also going to increase your blood volume so initially you lose it like I said earlier in the first 48 hours or so and then over time you build it back up so you've increased but then you've reached a potentially reached a higher blood volume than you did at the lower elevation as well. So this is one of the benefits of why athletes will come train at high elevations, even though their event is at low elevations, is they want to get those extra red blood cells, extra hemoglobin, and that increased blood volume. Because in theory, that means you can do a little bit more work at sea level as well, um, which isn't always the case for everybody, but for a lot of people it is. Um, some things I read is it, it does increase your lactate lactic threshold and VO2 max. Um, I'm not 100% certain on that, but it is some things I read. <clears throat> and I'll take them if it happens. Um, and another one that I thought was very interesting is your muscles become better at extracting oxygen from the blood, which kind of makes sense to me because, you know, if initially you, you know, your muscles have to work harder, we talked about that earlier, to pull the oxygen that you are getting out, because of that reduced pressure gradient, your muscles are going to become better at pulling the oxygen out. So if you come back down to low elevation, where the pressure gradient's in your favor, your muscles are still going to be used to, at least for a while, pulling that oxygen out, and you're going to be a little bit more efficient there. So it's all about delivering more blood cells with oxygen to your muscles is what it comes down to. Um, so pretty interesting stuff. I mean, over the years... Um, you know, I've lived, well, let's see, I've lived in Denver, Denver, Boulder, Denver area for about 20 plus years now. So I'm definitely fully acclimated to 6,000 feet elevation. But back in the day when I was racing professionally, um, I would go to San Diego to train, do my base training in San Diego because the weather's much better. Um, and for a few years there, I had uh, an altitude tent, which was really cool. Um, a tent I picked up uh, from Siri Lindley. Um, those in the triathlon world know who she is. She's a coach now, but she was a world champion triathlete and one of the best female triathletes in the world at um, some point, 10-ish years ago. Um, but I, I, bought a, I bought her altitude tent from her when she retired, and um, it was pretty cool. So this tent, the way it worked is I could – it basically – brought you simulated the elevation of um about eight to nine thousand feet higher than the elevation you were actually at okay so when i was in san diego at zero elevation i was fortunate enough to be living on the beach not literally on the beach but right next to the beach um in san diego in those years um so zero altitude and i could bring it up to like eight or nine thousand feet and sleep in this altitude tent for you know I usually try to go to bed super early to read because you wanted to. It's all about getting as many minutes at altitude to make it worthwhile. Uh, but I try to get at least ten hours a, a day or night um, in this altitude tent, 
to try to maintain my acclimation to the higher altitude from being in Denver. So I didn't, so I wouldn't lose it over the four months of base training at sea level. Um, and it was really interesting. And then when I'd go to Denver, I experimented with, um, staying in the altitude tent and I'd crank it up. And of course I've made the mistake of, you know, cranking it up to full. So I essentially went to something like, um, six plus nine, you know, 15,000 feet or whatever greater. Um, which was definitely ridiculous. I do, <laughs> I do remember waking up not feeling too well once or twice, and I figured out how to turn the dial down and stuff for that. And 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 I used the pulse oximeter to measure the uh, blood oxygen saturation um, through my fingertip, and it was it definitely worked. The the altitude tent. But what's cool about those altitude tents, or what's interesting, is you're not dealing with a pressure gradient there because you are technically at the same altitude you're just inside a tent but what the tent does it has a motor that is pumping in air that uh the, this motor pumps has the ability to um what was it i think it was add more nitrogen to to the air mixture being pumped in i'm not exactly sure how it did that because it's sucking in the air you're at it's not removing oxygen, but somehow is adding in more nitrogen, I believe. I could have this totally wrong, but this isn't from my memory. And the nitrogen, the increase in nitrogen made the, um, the percentage of nitrogen to oxygen less, thereby you didn't get as much oxygen into your blood. So the, your pulse oximeter would go from 99, you know, outside the tent at, at San Diego and I'd get, the the goal was always to get it to about eighty nine ninety to that simulates about you know nine ten thousand feet elevation or ninety two I think um, pulse ox so that was always the goal so I I believe that's how it worked but um, it was like this machine um, about the size of like a bedside table and you got in this tent it was a literal tent um, that you put over your bed and it pumped in it was loud it was hot and stuffy in there the thing would it would you had the motor going and then every like few seconds you had going in this is while you were trying to sleep and this is how i learned to sleep with earplugs um all night long and you got hot and you got sweaty and it really had its pluses and minuses did my hematocrit go up yes i i did see higher red blood cell content but um that was at the expense of perhaps sleep quality um and also recovery too. I noticed a definitely difference, like recovering between workouts, um, and that would bring us to our uh, downsides here. But you know, the when you're at elevation, I guess that lack of pressure, your body has to work harder to get the oxygen that it needs and wants. You know, you're compromising recovery a little bit, and of course you do adapt to this. But initially, you're compromising your sleep, you're compromising recovery, you're compromising hydration. Um, and also, probably maybe the most important one is if you're training, this doesn't in include tents. That was sort of a side story. Uh, but if you're training at elevation, you can't train as, quote, hard, i.e. as much power because of the discussion we had earlier about how you lose power at elevation. So the trade-off is you're getting all these aerobic benefits, but maybe not as much muscular force, power production, higher intensity um, ability there, too. So that's what spawns the whole idea of live high, train low. And that's where I was trying to go with this altitude tent story 
is that the what a lot of people agree is the best way, the optimal way to do this is you want to live at a high elevation, meaning you're exposed, you know, most hours of the day and night at, you know, nine or ten, you know, eight, nine, ten thousand, even seven thousand feet elevation to get all the benefits of the altitude, but then you come down to a lower elevation to do your high quality, high power work. So you get the benefits of that. But there's a lot of drawbacks to that. Outside of having a tent, like I just described, um, there's very few places geographically in the country that you can do that. I mean, Tucson, Arizona, maybe, um, you know, if you camped up on Mount Lemmon and came down to do your intervals in Tucson, um, parts of California, you could, you could be at, you know, a couple thousand feet as the low and, you know, get up into the Sierras at eight, 9,000 feet, um, within an hour-ish drive. Um, but there aren't many places out there like that. So, uh, but that would be the optimal way to go that way if you can um so all this said um you know as you do acclimatize or acclimate i think acclimate is the proper term to elevation uh you do improve your performance at elevation um, and i've seen that over these last couple of weeks um now, do you prove performance when you go from high elevation to low elevation? It's very individual. A lot of people do um, for reasons we discussed earlier, but not everyone does. And the results and the body's ability to adapt and take the benefits of altitude training is very individual and very different. Um, some people see large improvements, um, you know, comparable to taking performance-enhancing drugs even. And most people see mild to moderate improvements, and then a few people see very little if any improvements which i thought was really interesting as well um so i think the nutshell here is you know if you are going to do an altitude training camp um you know it's best to go to altitude and focus on your lower intensity aerobic work uh, much like i'm doing here aerobic threshold and below um so you get all those aerobic blood boosting benefits of the altitude but then save the high intensity work for later so it, which is exactly what I'm attempting to do here is get all this aerobic work over these three weeks. I'm going to go home and recover and then start a high intensity block back down at 6,000 feet where in theory I should be able to do a little bit more work um, than I might have otherwise been able to. So we'll find out. Um, but yeah, I mean, my experience so far, um, it is noticeable. I mean, the first few workouts, you know, two plus weeks ago, um, they were relatively short intervals. I think my very first workout was like eight times, uh, five minutes at aerobic threshold. So 40 minutes total. Um, and my power was like around two in the two seventies for that. And, um, which was a little bit lower than what I would do at home at 6,000 feet. Remembering the aerobic block we did back in April, um, and so I expected that a little bit, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to do less power here. But what I adapted very quickly. So by the second week, even by the end, like the third workout, I was back up to like, the intervals were longer. I was doing more minutes. Like I was up to six by 10 or something by the third workout, I believe, um, or four by 15, something like that. So reasonably long and power was actually going up even though the duration was going up. I was then in the 280s. And then um, last week at our We Devo training camp, I was in the 280s and even kissed the 290s on a couple of intervals. And we were doing, you know, 20 and 30 minute long intervals at this point. 
Um, and then early this week, now I'm in the third week, I'm accumulating some fatigue as well. My Tuesday workout went the best ever. I did four by 30 minutes, so two hours worth of work. And I averaged, um, I have it on my Instagram story of all things, but um, I paced it so perfectly. I'm so, so proud of myself. Um, if I could give myself kudos, I would on Strava. Um, I, it was something like 280. 285, 290, 295 um, for each of those 30-minute intervals, which is as good or even slightly better than what I was doing at 6,000 feet back in April, which to me is like mind-blowing that I've sort of, quote, adapted or acclimated well enough to the altitude that quickly. Power is up. Um, I mean, as a little asterisk or caveat to this is the where we would do the intervals at home was on um, a paved road of less steepness, a lesser grade, like a four, five, six percent grade, where the climb I'm doing um, here is a dirt road climb that's more like a 10% grade. So that does help push the watts up a little bit, but I'm still keeping my heart rate at that same 80%, um, which is all very interesting. And I was on the same bike, actually. I would do the pavement ones in April on my mountain bike as well. Um, so the power meter is the same, just the gradient and I suppose the traction slightly between pavement and dirt would be a little bit different. So, But it's all like super interesting things. So what I'm going to look for when I finish up this week, which by the way, I did start to struggle Thursday um, and started to crumble a little bit in the last one. So my fatigue is definitely accumulating. I'm going to attempt one more workout as as of this podcast recording where I'm going to go three times to the top of the mountain, which is about a 40-plus minute um, interval, three times. And I'm going to try to, my target is to be hovering in the 280s, like low 280s. I'm going to try to pace myself properly for that, um, which would be a kind of a breakthrough workout for me. And then I'll recover, and then I'll retest uh, my aerobic power back home at 6,000 feet and my anaerobic power to see what kind of gains I've possibly made there. And then um, hopefully if my doctor will do it for me, get a uh, blood test just for curiosity's sake to see what my red blood cell count in hematocrit is compared to uh, six months ago, um, last time I was in to the doctor. So um, so all interesting things. Kind of a, I mean, this is an N equal one experiment for sure. So um, don't take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, in three weeks it is you know, in two plus weeks, it is possible to make some adaptations, you know, acclimate to uh, the higher elevation. So lots of fun stuff. I'll I'll fill you in on kind of the results of the testing um, next week as well. So, all right, cool. I've spoken for an hour now. Um, Throat's getting sore. I need to drink my uh, fizzy water, but I'm afraid to burp over the microphone. So I'll spare you that. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, send them to me. Um, my email is Cody at teamweight.com and I'll put a link in the show notes on that. And also if you've been enjoying the show lately, please do subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We're also available on Google podcast as well. Um, and we'd love to get ratings and reviews. So if you have a moment and you're on the Apple podcast, iTunes platform, um, give us a five-star rating. If you don't think we deserve that, let us know how we can improve. Um, and we'll attempt to do so. And then, you know, if you have even extra time, leave a, a quick review um, to let other people know how great we are. So um, that helps us in the search rankings and whatnot too, so more people find us. So 
All right. I'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening. And um, thankfully, Kathy will be back with us next week. And um, you won't have to hear me talk quite as much. Have a good one.